Hello and welcome back to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, joy and purpose. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. And if you do love the podcast, can you do me a favour and hit subscribe? It really does help. This week's guest is the lovely Anna Martha, psychotherapist, best-selling author and mum of three. And I'm very grateful to be able to say a friend of mine and a massive supporter of Motherkind. So this is Anna's third time on the show. And this episode we recorded to celebrate the launch of her third book, The Little Book of Calm for New Mums, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. Let me ask you a question. How often do you just hold it all together, push through and keep going? I think we all do that to some extent. And in some ways we have to. But as Anna shares in this episode from her own incredibly humbling experience of burnout, there is cost to doing that. And we firstly have to recognize that and then think differently about what we need to support ourselves. Anna is amazing. I know lots of you already know and love Anna. This is a really powerful episode. You're going to love it. Here it is. Hello, my lovely. Welcome back to the podcast. This is your third time. And last time you're on was the middle of the pandemic. So I'm looking forward to hearing updates and what has been going on your side. Well, you were my first ever podcast that I recorded. Is that right? Yeah. First ever. And I came to your house. So I popped Anna's you podcast did. cherry. You did. What a <laughs> wonderful way to enter into the podcast world. And now look at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I always love chatting with you, both on the mic and off the mic. We were just chatting before. It's amazing. When you know someone, but you don't know them, you know, we only know each other professionally, really. You can just cut that small talk straight into the depth. Let's do that now. You know, last time we spoke was the middle of the pandemic you spoke really openly and compassionately and bravely about your experience of burnout through that time tell us about that how did you get through those pandemic years as well as writing two books it's just mind-blowing to me I'm learning so much about myself now actually as kind of you know normal-ish life is resuming in whatever way that looks like and I don't know where I was in that burnout stage when I spoke to you but I had so about a year ago, last Easter, I had this massive burnout, like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Had I gone through that? No. No, I think we were talking about the kind of simmering burnout, weren't we? Of like, how on earth can we kind of keep this at bay and what feeds it and what in our stories kind of finds us pushing through and pushing through? Well, I pushed through and I pushed through and I broke into a million pieces and it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life and it's kind of terrified me but you know when something scares you in a really good way in a way that you think I can never and I will do anything and everything so that I never go back to that place again and I remember we had planned to go to Wales when my husband grew up and it was you know the first break basically away from home really that we had planned and my husband, you know, Tara would every now and again, he would say, what time should we leave? What time should we leave that day? Should we book a shop to arrive, you know, like an online shop? And every time he spoke about it, I got this kind of really intense wave of stress and panic in my body. So I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about 
going on holiday now. The kids were so excited. He was so excited. They were in the process of selling their family home. So we didn't know if this was going to be the last time that we would be able to go there. So the day crept up and I got more and more stressed and we had to avoid the conversation altogether. And I just hoped that on the day we were due to leave, I would just deal with it and pack and do it. And he took the kids out so that I could do all of the, you know, just kind of the gathering together of all of the stuff. And I couldn't do it. And I sat on the kitchen floor and I just cried and cried and cried. And I just remember shaking and thinking, I can't do it. And I, I remember I'd packed a water bottle in a bag. So he came back, I think, an hour and a half, two hours later. And I was on the floor and I packed a water bottle in a bag. And that was it. And I spoke to my mom on the phone and I was kind of in that, you know, that hyperventilating, crying, snot everywhere state. And she said, and what if you just didn't go? It was like, it hadn't even occurred to me that that could be an option. But I was like, I couldn't not do that. Everyone wants this. How can I deprive them of that? And anyway, my husband came home and I sat down with him and I was like, I can't do it. So amazingly, for some reason, I was expecting to have to put up a fight. But I think he knew. He knew. And I said, I don't even think I can sit in the car for four hours with the usual squabbles and the snap requests and the turning around and the digging around for the drop toy. I was done. There was no sensory space left for me. And I felt so incredibly guilty as we told the children and they cried that we weren't going away because this was the day, you know, it was the day that had been kind of this countdown. And I remember I had to totally and utterly reframe the whole situation. And I thought, imagine if I spent a lot of money on a holiday for everyone, you know, and that was a decision that was that I took out an overdraft and I spent this overdraft on a holiday and we all went away and we all enjoyed it. Now that is my collective debt that we need to repay. And I started thinking, you know, I have spent the overdraft of my energy on trying to contain myself and the children and trying to keep life stable and okay as it can be in the pandemic. And I'm in debt. I'm in a massive red debt. So I had to think that this is therefore a collective debt that we have to repay. It has to be a family thing and that's going to have a cost. There are things we're going to have to do without. There are things I'm going to have to say no to as a way of repaying this debt. But it was the most humbling physical experience. And I never knew that burnout could feel so physical. I could barely even be bothered to move my eyes at some points. The noise, even happy noises felt like knives. My body would just go into this stress response. As soon as anybody asked anything of me, even getting a text message from a friend or family member just felt like a demand. I had to reply to it. And it was, yeah, the most humbling eye-opening experience, terrifying experience that had me having to reframe and reshape the way that I see the world because I never want to go back there again. So yeah, that's what happened after we, after we spoke. At some point, I can't remember the timing, but it, you know these things are a descent into, aren't they? They can feel like they just suddenly happen, but actually, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. I'm just in awe of your humility. I think your ability to just 
have that humility, you know, despite knowing what you know and, you know, what you talk about. And I think that is what gives people so much comfort is that none of us are immune from these. None of us are, particularly through the pandemic. And I think so many people are going to resonate with that experience of just being on the floor. And I know I had you know, micro moments like that, I was able to get myself back up. But just, I think so many people are going to resonate. You said, you know, it's a slow descent. What were some of those signs? Because I think for anyone listening who might be on that downward trajectory, what are some of the things to look for? And what do you wish looking back that you'd taken more seriously or done differently? Yeah, so I think it's that series of those micro moments that just keep coming and you keep picking yourself up and pushing on and not changing anything or respecting that actually those micro moments are like red flags there. And if you ignore them, then the micro moments just get closer and closer and closer together. And for me, it was like disinterest in connecting. It was feeling that any need coming towards me, even, you know, Taryn saying, should we do this or should we do that? Or, you know, what do you want to eat? Or do you want to go and take some time for yourself? You know, do you want to go for a walk or something? Or do you want to do a workout? And even that decision-making, it felt like really hard to make decisions. And that's one of the things. And the irritation, that irritability, just really close to the surface and things would irritate me and noise. And it's like that sensory input of kind of movement and noise of which there is so much in my house would just start sensing a physical reaction to it and I think what I wish I'd have done differently now I think this is the challenge isn't it because I think in the pandemic there was less stuff that we could do so I think a lot of people have experienced burnout and it can be a combination I think it often is a combination of the fact that you are the kind of person you pick yourself up and you move on and you have high standards and you want to parent in a certain way that you're proud of and that takes a lot from you but you're not necessarily prioritizing the resourcing yourself And that was hard. So I think some of it is circumstantial and some of it is quite habitual. And then the two together can be quite a molten mess that can lead you to that place. So what do I wish I'd prioritized? Taking those opportunities for rest, better boundaries around work, but it was hard because work was an escape for me. In work often is an escape. Home life is challenging and parenting is challenging and You know, I often feel that it's one of those spaces where you can be creative and you can put lots in, but you also get lots out. But as parenting, you do get lots out, but it's different, isn't it? The feedback is different. The way it's it's given is very different. Yeah, so I think those were some of the signs. I just think, though, don't you think, you know, that time with schools closing and homeschooling and having to continue work, I mean, it's just... It's a miracle to me that all the mothers up and down the country weren't on that floor like you were. You know, and I suspect millions and millions were, you know, it's just unbelievable if you think about what us mothers held through that time. It's just unreal. And I wonder what the long term impact of that is going to be. And I think, you know, people can feel so tentative with applying the word trauma to what we went through because we know that there is, you know, we start kind of grading things, don't we? As if, well, that person really went through trauma. They lost someone. That person was working the front line, that person. So they deserve to use that label. Whereas actually, I think there is something kind of traumatic about the pushing through and the pushing through and the pushing through and saying, you know, how many times did we say to ourselves, I can't do this. And then we did it. You know, and we can praise ourselves and say, you know, we're stronger than we think we are. Yes, we are. 
but it has a cost. Every time we push through, every time we push through the barrier of our own resources or we keep calm and carry on when everything in us just wants to scream and stop, it has a cost. Just because we can do it doesn't mean that it's good for us. You know, it has a cost and that cost builds up. I notice that even when my kids want to print something off, again, like I get this kind of rising response physically because it just reminds me of home learning. It reminds me of fighting with a printer. It reminds me of my laptop saying, can't identify printer. And I'm like, you are next. Do the printer. It is. And I'm like pointing between the laptop and the... Ah. And it's those moments, you know, those things that just whip you back. My kids' school want me to download their homework off the Google Classroom, and I have never done it because I can't. I'm like, I don't want to. It's not somewhere I want to be logging on to. Can you just print it out like the old-fashioned? Yeah, put it in a folder, put it in the book bag. I think so many people are going to relate to that. I was lucky because Jessie wasn't – she was finishing nursery into reception, so I dodged a bit of a bullet. We had home learning to do, but I just thought I'm not doing it. She's reception. I was like, come on. Nah, we didn't do it. We didn't do it in the first one at all, no. But, you know, it's those things that are reminiscent. And when we find ourselves having a physical reaction to that, it's so easy just to kind of ridicule ourselves in a way. And we do that kind of comparison ladder, stress and trauma, and who actually has the right to feel. And I think this is one of the things that contributes to burnout and overwhelm is that we're just invalidating our own feelings. And we can use gratitude to do that, can't we? Like gratitude is the most incredible, powerful tool. It's changed my life, but it's also one of the things I sometimes use to beat myself around the bottom for feeling a feeling, which is a normal human response to a circumstance. Yeah, I think that's it's such an interesting tightrope to walk along, isn't it? Feeling grateful for what we've got and yet at the same time being able to express, as you say, all the feelings, the anger, the rage. And we have to be careful that we don't sort of go toxic positivity on ourselves. And, you know, that's insanity. I actually managed to get to a place now where I'm grateful for the feelings. So I still use my gratitude practice, but I'm like, I'm grateful for this rage. This rage is telling me something. It means that I'm human. It means I'm alive. It means that I'm, fe- you know, I can still sort of put that lens of presence on it. I no longer do that thing, which is what you're talking about so brilliantly of like, you're not allowed to feel this. You're not allowed to think this, which is just, yeah, isn't it mad? That's where we go. Well, whoever gets to feel, like whoever gets to be sad, whoever gets to feel lost or overwhelmed, then is there like a pyramid and someone resides at the top of each feeling and they are the chosen one who is fully allowed to embody and respond to that feeling. But I was thinking the other day as I... I had a really challenging day with the kids and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to do this again tomorrow. I've got to do this again tomorrow. And it was that like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, and then I had that other feeling of gratitude of like, wow, I get to do this again. It's hard, but I have these children and they are precious and I love them and it's a privilege. And because I lost my sister when she was six to cancer, you know, there's awareness that I have them and they are healthy. And that is everything so you're holding these two things in tandem and it's so easy to be like oh my gosh Anna stop moaning to yourself today was hard get over it you're so lucky but we need both we need that response to the circumstances it's human we don't need to place too much kind of power on emotion it's just a response 
it's valid because you're feeling it and you're a person and you're valuable. But also that gratitude, you know, that just brings in that bigger picture thinking that has us feeling that joy or that grounding. And we need both because if we just were in our feelings all the time, we'd be all over the shop because they change so much. We'd feel overwhelmed. We might feel hopeless. We might feel kind of just stuck and lost. But if we were always just focusing on the gratitude, we'd be completely overlooking our humanness, the richness of experience. So we need both. We absolutely do. Someone said to me once, I think it must have been in a recovery meeting, which is where most of my wisdom comes from, (laughs) that the definition of maturity is being able to hold two opposite truths. Yeah. So that's absolutely just so true and brilliant. And yeah, this is hard and I love it. I get to do this again tomorrow and I've got to do this again tomorrow. Like just holding those two truths, both are true. I can feel both. Yeah. You don't need to use one to kind of just completely destroy the other. Exactly. So what's your recovery looks like from that burnout, from that floor moment? I have felt incredibly fragile. So it's been a long journey. And again, it's this kind of complete education of the nervous system and how sensitive we can become. And when we've reached that burnout, it's that physical thing. It's like your skin's taken off. It's like everything happening around you is directly hitting you. It's like there is no buffer to the world. There is no buffer between reacting and responding. It was just pure reaction. And as someone who likes to and has to try quite hard to be like calm and parent in a way that is more conscious and considered and, you know, respond to people in a way that is kind of kind and compassionate, you know, having that buffer removed made that incredibly hard. And it was a real challenge of identity. So the journey kind of onward from that. So how many, has it been a year or two years? I think maybe, maybe it's been two years. Yeah, two years from that point, I've had to respect myself. I've had to respect this journey of it has been a recovery. So if I hit life too hard, then I may have a weekend where I'm, and I look at my app where I track my cycles and I just hope that I am like two days away from my period so I can have a reason to pin this feeling on, you know, that kind of that hormone irritable reactive feeling. And then I'm like devastated because I look at it and I'm like, I'm nowhere near there. It's obviously just that I've been doing too much and I've gone back touched on this state again just a little bit so I think it's life-changing in the way that if you don't want to go back there you have to change your life you have to start respecting and prioritizing your needs and that is hard you know that is hard but I think we often overlook those small opportunities so this morning I went for a walk for 10 minutes before my husband left at seven o'clock in the morning. And I've been getting up often at quarter to six really naturally and just using that time and thinking, I like that because I can go for a walk and I know that that helps me. So I could have easily not gone for 10 minutes this morning or I could have gone for 10 minutes, listened to the birds and walked through the woods and come back to crazy breakfast time with the kids with something to give. So it's taking those little opportunities and not overlooking them and taking the big ones and dealing with the guilt that might come with that and doing it anyway. Yeah, it's really utterly transformed the way that I view and respect self-care. It's not cheesy to me. It's literally the way that I love my children and the way that I love my husband. 
I totally and utterly agree. How's it changed how you run your business? Because from the outside, it looks like, you know, success after success, after growth, after growth. How's that factored in with the recovery? So I spend a lot of my income on people. So I've got a wonderful Kate who works, I think, almost as much as I do. I think she probably does like two days a week on all the logistics and the admin side of it. And then I pay someone else to edit all my podcasts and I pay someone else to do all my website. So that's my resource because your well-being is expensive. It's expensive as in it costs a lot to be okay. Now I'm talking, when I talk about cost, I'm talking about kind of that priority, those moments of space and rest and the logistics around that might be asking people to support you. It costs a lot in making those decisions around kind of nourishing yourself in whatever way that looks like. For me, it's the financial cost of, to be able to do this job that I love, I need to spend a good chunk of my income on the people who can help me not be doing it all the time with every waking moment. So that's how I'm doing it is that I'm not on my own. Yeah, I relate. And I'm the same. Like I'm not very good at buying myself clothes or things like that. I spend most of my money on help in the house as well. I have a lot of help in the house and childcare help because that's what I need in order to continue doing this juggle. It's a privilege for sure to be able to do that. It's a massive privilege. It is a real privilege, but it enables me to enjoy doing what I do. It's the only way I can carry on doing it. I can't do everything. And I'm also much more confident with my no's because I know the cost of the yeses that I can't afford. So I don't feel guilty when I say no. I say it kindly, but often, yeah, there are a lot more no's now. And I don't feel that same torment that I used to, like that people-pleasing torment of like, oh, that opportunity might never come around again or what they're going to think. And, you know, I know the cost of the yeses that I cannot afford. And it is not a cost that I can keep spending for the sake of so much. I've heard you talk about that before and it's just so powerful that our yeses have such a cost. And I think it's also really good to hear you talking about when you first start saying no and putting those boundaries down and recovering from that people pleasing, the feelings that can come up. I don't think we talk about that enough. Nicola Perra, who I know that you follow too, she talks about that a lot. And I find that so helpful that when you first start saying no, it's so uncomfortable. When I first started doing it, I bet backtrack because the discomfort of sitting in a boundary was like, ah, I just want to backtrack on this. And make it okay, particularly if the other person comes back with something. It's like, oh, so uncomfortable. But I think for me, it's just learning to sit in that discomfort. I think that's where all growth comes from. Can I sit in this discomfort? Because if it's comfortable, it's habitual and therefore I'm not changing. Yeah, so true. So true. And you start seeing where else you can spend the energy that you have regained or not spent or just preserve something of yourself so you're not in the red for doing that. Like, we can do a lot of things, but it doesn't mean that the repercussions are going to be good. There's always a cost. Exactly. I love just the way that you use your words so visually. I've said that to you before. I just love it. I, you know, it's so powerful. And I want to talk to you about the new book and some of the metaphors in here. Where did the idea come from? The little bit of calm, the little book of calm for new mums. It was literally, I was stood in the kitchen feeding the kids on like Wednesday afternoon and it was like gray and they were tired and I was tired. 
And you know those moments where you're just stand there and you're like, oh, this is so hard. I just felt depleted. And I was thinking like, which of my mates can I just send a little WhatsApp to, to get some kind of grounding words or just, you know, a, oh my gosh, yeah, same here. You know, that kind of like comforting connection. When you, sometimes you feel quite alone as a mum, I think. I just wanted that connection. And then I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to have a book of words that are like that friend putting their hand on your shoulder or giving you that hug or sending you that message that you didn't have to read like from front to back, but you could literally just pick it up and be like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so irritable or I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling resentful or I'm feeling bored or lonely or I'm just having a wave of like missing my old life. So I literally that afternoon messaged my wonderful literary agent. I was like, I've got this idea. And then I literally started writing, I think the next week, because it was what I needed as a mum. It's all the words I wanted to hear, the words I'd want to say if I could. So that's what it is really. It's a book of feelings and you just skip to them. It's amazing. And some of the (sighs) missing my old life, procrastinating, panicking, resentful, which chapter do you find yourself going to the most? At the moment, I think it would be loneliness. I think it would be loneliness, which is funny because I'm always so surrounded by family and I've just got out of the habit of organizing things with friends. And I'm really feeling that. Like this weekend, you know, it was another weekend. We did some great stuff with the kids. Like we're good at seeing family. I looked at the table on like the Saturday night and thought, man, we would normally pre-pandemic have said to like a mate or a neighbor, like come around for dinner or let's have a takeaway. Let's play a ball game. And those moments of just relaxing, connecting with people, I just feel like have slipped out of our life. We've gotten out of the habit. Like I see lots of mums through school. And then it's also like over the last couple of years, loads of my friends that have babies have gone back to work. So I used to know what days people worked. I used to know what their childcare, you know, that how they week. I used to see this friend on a Wednesday and the, I knew these girls were around on a Friday. And there was just more of an awareness of who I could connect with. But now I feel like, I don't know who's around. Everyone's probably busy. They're probably working. They're probably with the kids. So I'm not even going to bother asking. And I feel like I need to kind of just push through that. I see loneliness, I think, as a disconnection from ourselves and from others. So I feel like that's a good way to seek it. A quick word from this week's sponsor, Jamondo. So studies show that regular exercise not only builds your physical strength, but also boosts your mood, reduces stress and increases self-esteem. I definitely know that one of the easiest ways for me to get that serotonin flowing is through exercise. So let's get more of that incredible post-exercise feeling with Jamondo, which is an online fitness and well-being platform with hundreds of 20 to 30 minute workouts, brilliant time for me, and programs ranging from HIIT and yoga to dance and meditation, plus thousands of healthy recipes. Jamondo will help you make exercise a consistent part of your routine, because as we all know, consistency is the key. And because Jamondo is online, it will give you freedom and flexibility to decide when and where you work out, which is for me in my living room. Start a free 14-day trial, free 14-day trial and save 50% on your annual membership by visiting jamondo.com. That's G-Y-M-O-N-D-O.com and enter the code MOTHERKIND. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. Back to the episode. One of my biggest survival tools, I call it, is isolation. It's my biggest one. One, probably, yeah, top two. (laughs) It's isolation. The moment things get hard for me, I just want to hide and I literally will isolate myself. I can go weeks just doing the drop off, seeing the guy, seeing the kid. If I'm not careful, I really can. I can ignore messages from my friends. It's huge for me. It's like a social anorexia that I go into. It's definitely an addiction. And it's really, really hard because I don't notice it always when I'm going into it. Yeah, it's that kind of slowly slipping into, isn't it? And I think it's hard when also isolation or solitude, which for some reason solitude sounds more nourishing, doesn't it? Than isolation has got kind of a, it's something you you are put into, Whereas solitude is often something that we seek that is nourishing. Well, I don't know. They just sound different to me. But solitude is like one of my coping mechanisms in a good way. I need it. But then also you can get too much of it. Do you know what I mean? It's like a spectrum, isn't it? I think solitude for me is like spending that time connected with myself. That's really positive. I think how I know that isolation and sometimes the like social anorexia side of me is that I do it to avoid I'm doing it because there's something that I'm avoiding. And one way that I go there is I just want to hide. Whereas the solitude is definitely like a positive for me. And I think those words are interesting to think about, aren't they? Loneliness and solitude. Yeah. And how so many things and coping mechanisms are so socially acceptable, which kind of makes it harder, doesn't it? You know, having time on your own, it's really socially acceptable. So when does it get to a point where your mates are like, mm, Zoe? Yeah, Hello. exactly. Yeah, are you okay? we're here. We're here. It's like workalism, isn't it? It's such a fine line between success and, you know, God, you just go on Instagram and there's hundreds of coaches telling you, you know, that you've got to be successful and grow. And, and yet workalism, I think, is the sort of hidden addiction of our Western world. I think it's massive. It's these lines, isn't it? It's these lines. And I think that comes from awareness, from self-awareness. And no one else can give you that awareness apart from yourself. Yeah. And that's the hard thing, isn't it? I think we've been taught so much to look outside of ourselves to tell us how to be. And we just, we then overlook or we become less sensitive to where those lines sit with inside of ourselves, where we know that actually I've I've verged now from solitude to kind of isolation or actually really thriving and enjoying my work to workholism. Like, where's the boundary? Because the one thing will be applauded. How do you do that for yourself? Like, what are your 
ways you said you've learned so much about yourself in the last two years how have you done that are you journaling are you having therapy are you group therapy are you in 12 step like what are you doing so I have therapy I've had therapy I think I re-engaged in therapy a few years ago maybe three years ago after I had Florence and I was writing a book and she was a baby and I wanted to really make sure that I was being accountable because I didn't want to kind of slip into ironically that kind of overwhelm people pleasing perfectionism so it was kind of for accountability in anyone I've never stopped I've carried on because I'm like I need this I need kind of this ongoing accountability and exploration and so I have therapy I also listen to so much I go out on walks and I listen to podcasts and I listen to your podcast and all the wisdom that you bring and I love kind of happy place as well just these amazing wise thinkers that just come with a message, deliver it so warmly and powerfully. And, you know, you always go away with something that sits in you and it's that kind of dis-ease or discomfort or disturbing in, in like the best of ways or like tools or equipping. And I think I learn so much and I often feel like really emotional when I listen to your podcast. And I know I've sent you voice notes in the past saying like, this is just such a privilege to be able to listen to these conversations for free that nurture and challenge and equip us is just incredible. So I learned so much from, you know, those conversations that you bring and the resources that are out there. So I read a lot of books. I think because I'm writing about this stuff all the time as well, it's just reaffirming. It's like constant therapy. (laughs) It becomes what comes out of you as well. And sometimes my boundaries are really good and then sometimes they slip and sometimes they don't need to be as rigid. So when I'm feeling burnt out, I'll often go for a period of not going on my email or Instagram between 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. And that's really good. But then actually, I found more recently that my usage just dropped anyway. So I don't need to hold that boundary quite so rigidly. So it's just being honest with yourself. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I get that ugh feeling like, oh, if I'm responding to an email when I'm doing the kids' tea, it's that like internal, like, oh, I know that I'm doing something that a part of me is not happy about. And sometimes I'll look at my phone in the evening, I want to throw out the window. And I think that that to me is a sign that those boundaries have just become a bit blurred and I need to hold myself a bit more accountable. Yeah, it's like that nudge, isn't it? I did it. Was it two nights ago? I really wanted to watch the Will Young documentary because that's my lived experience of, you know, addiction in my family. And I I really wanted to watch it and it got to 10 o'clock and I hadn't had a chance to, we're trying to book a holiday, all this, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, hadn't got a chance to put it on. And for me, it's like that willful side of me is like, I want to do this. That's my like sort of addicty side, really. That this part of me that's like, I want to do this. The really wise part of me was like, Zoe, it's not the time to watch this. It's bedtime. It's 10 o'clock. It's already too late. Anyway, the willful like side of me won and I watched it. And then of course, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I finally got to sleep about midnight and then there was a storm. So at half, obviously, so it just gone midnight, just as I dropped off, Jesse woke up for two hours. And then the next morning was like, I I just felt terrible all morning. And I was like, it's just so interesting to me. I don't beat myself up about it. I'm like, those nudges are there for me. Those nudges of like, this isn't the right thing for you. Sometimes I just override them and then I get some information and it's great, blah, blah, blah. 
I'm like, wow, it's like that willful part of me that still wants to self-sabotage in that way can be really strong still. I think it always will be. It's like you, I get those nudges. I get those nudges, put the phone down. It's not the time. You know, we're trying to do too many things at once. A voice will come through, which will be like just one thing at a time, Zoe. (laughs) Sometimes I listen, sometimes I don't. (laughs) That's the best. I know, but at least it's there. And I think it gives you that choice in that moment, doesn't it? Of like, oh, shut up. Goody T-shoes. I'm going to watch the flipping documentary and I don't care, you know, but at least that dialogue is there and that I have that dialogue as well. And it's a wonderful dialogue. I really like it because actually it's a caring one. It's a grown up one that knows what's good for me. It's a grown up one that is just trying to look out for me and look at the bigger picture. And I really appreciate it because in place of that, there used to be this horrible one that would just be like, for goodness sake, Hannah, like what the heck is wrong with you? Why can't you just even go to bed? You know, you're going to be knackered tomorrow and you're going to be so angry and grumpy and you're going to be a terrible parent. And I'm grateful for that, for that nurturing motherly voice inside of me because I know what was there before. And when I listen to it, it's normally very right. But there is, you know, we've all got this little rebellious child in us and that's okay. Yeah. Sometimes that part of me brings so much fun and spontaneity. And yeah, it's, as you say, I think, which is the theme of our conversation, it's like no one knows what's right for you apart from you like that line is for you for you to discover and uncover what are you still discovering and uncovering about yourself ah just hmm that's such a good question I think there's so much in family that I'm still realizing is untouched and unhealed and unexplored and that lives in my day-to-day so you know obviously there's so much going on at the moment and with Bow Babe and Deborah and her amazing kind of fundraising for cancer research. And I've been following that. I've been following her story over the last five years. And, you know, suddenly all of this stuff is coming up about those last days with my sister, you know, 26 years ago. And I just think there was so much that was undealt with. And when one of your coping mechanisms is perfectionism, you can just be so very believable that you're okay. And I think when everyone treats you like you're okay and everyone's relieved that you're okay, you believe that you're okay. And then, you know, there are little things along the ways over the years that just remind you how deceptive that was and quite how much got tucked away inside of it underneath that. So I'm thinking a lot about it. And I think it's not just because it's all, you know, it's very evident in the press. I think it's also because it's just touching on How would I have experienced that as a 10-year-old if I wasn't trying to do it so well and to be so easy around it all? And what must that have felt like? Because I can barely remember in some ways. Yeah, I remember being at the funeral thinking I, I should cry because everyone will think I didn't love her if I didn't cry. But then I just almost didn't know how to because my response was just to be neat and to me crying you know I didn't want anyone to worry about me so at the same time I didn't want people to worry think anything of me that I wasn't crying but I also didn't want anyone to worry about me if I was to cry so it's just all these things you know just that kind of pop up and you think wow that was a heck of a lot to go through that's a heck of a big story to be woven through my life that would have shaped me in ways that I'll never fully understand maybe So I think that feels quite present at the moment. The fragility of life, I'm finding different situations coming up with friends and 
friends of friends where there was some really hard and scary and sad things happening. And I find it really hard to stand on that balance between fear and presence and being present out of fear. Because I think that's what I end up doing is I end up being wanting to be so present because I'm so scared. And is that presence when there's so much fear? I don't know. And I think maybe presence without faith is fear. You know, it's just that faith of like, this is the moment. This is where I am. You know, I'm vulnerable. But on the flip side of that is love, like love and vulnerability. are just two sides of the same coin. And I find that really scary. But that's just life. And you want to love. But then you have more risk. It's what makes life rich is also what makes life risky. Again, that's one of those huge contradictions, which we have to hold. It's like, yeah, if I don't love, I don't have that risk. And thank you for sharing about your sister. I actually got goosebumps as you started sharing. And I found that really emotional because I was imagining 10-year-old little Anna just keeping very neat. And you know what I think? As I've gone through this sort of healing, I guess you would call it path of unpacking and peeling the layers, is that the things come up right on time as I'm resourced enough to look more deeply at them. And I'm just blown away by my brain's ability to, you know, I love denial. Denial has saved me. It's enabled me to keep going. And then when I don't understand it, I guess it's when my nervous system or when something knows that I'm ready to look at something, the denial just starts like to scratch away, you know, like almost like a scratch card. And I'm incredibly grateful for those moments when I'm like, okay, here we go. Here's another, I was just sharing one with you actually, before we started recording a new memory I had this morning, a new realization. It's like, wow, it just keeps going. It keeps going, the deepening, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's like, you can untether things a little bit and then other things start becoming unstuck that you never realize were tied to that. Like, and I sometimes think of like a hot air balloon and you know, they're kind of the ropes that hold it down. And sometimes it's just like, you just start soaring away at one and then you see it kind of move and jerk and, and then, yeah, it lets go. And there's freedom in that, but it's not easy, is it? It's not nice to look at ourselves sometimes in those dark corners and just go into them and think, actually, there's some tidying up here to be done. But then I can look at that corner without, I don't know, it's just clearer. And we can move into that space and we can live in that space and we just, yeah, embody ourselves a little bit more each time. Mm, gets more expansive, doesn't it? I used to be so small and, yeah, as you create more spaciousness by looking at the harder stuff, when it's right on time with the right support, it does get more spacious and expansive and bandwidth and all those lovely words. Such good words, such good words. So what are you feeling really excited about? The book's coming out. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm really excited about that. And I think for the first time, so this is the third book that I've had out, the first one, I cried all day and not happy tears. It was horrible. And I remember coming downstairs and Tara and my husband and the three kids decorated the table and like got flowers. And you know, this was like deep in lockdown and all of my publicity stuff was online and you know everything was all zoom and this and that screens and and I just remember crying because I didn't feel how I expected to feel I expected to feel really great really proud and I just felt like myself and I wanted to feel different and I wanted to feel better but I didn't and it was just like this massive anticlimax of oh I'm still the same I've just written a book, <laughs> but I'd known about that for a year anyway. And now it's just out. Oh. And so the second one was a bit more 
I guess I can enjoy it a little bit more. I didn't put the same pressure on it. Whereas this one, I do feel proud. I already feel proud and I, I'm excited for people to have it. I know that it's not going to make me feel like a better person. It's not going to take away any of my, my kind of insecurities. But I think that first one, it was like peeling off that layer and realizing that, man, I'm still looking for that approval. I'm still looking for that nod. I'm still hungering for that. And that was hard to see, especially when I write so much about self-esteem. You know, you just realize there's another layer. Oh, thank you for sharing that because I think Glennon Doyle said to me when I asked her about this exact thing, she said, there is no there, there. She said, Oprah called me. She goes, I felt no different. She's like, we think that we're going to get these things and then it's going to finally make us feel. And she's like, it's an inside job. And some ways I find that really reassuring as an inside job. In other words, really annoying. Like, wouldn't it be great if we could just get these things on the outside and it would fix us? Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be great. And I think one of the most pertinent things I ever heard on this was Robbie Williams talking about how he reached the mountaintop of his kind of musical career and sold the most tickets. And then he said, I still wanted to kill myself because he was feeling so suicidal and depressed. And he thought, wow, you are on a mountaintop of what the world said was success and the adoration and the sellout tickets. And you still felt utterly hopeless so it just you know it's that reminder that we have to affirm ourselves along the way we have to accept ourselves along the way because nothing is going to happen that is going to do that for us it's an inside job sometimes I go there I think oh I do the when then game when I have this then I'll feel when I have this then I feel and I have to really catch myself like so I remember the day I gunned for a first at uni. I was like, I'm gonna, I don't know why. I just decided I'm going to get a first. I did economics. I'm numerically dyslexic. I don't even know how I did it. And I got a first. And I remember it was one of the hardest days of my life because I stood there looking at that result and I realized, shit, I feel no different. I feel the same. And I was like, God, so if this doesn't work, this whole attaining stuff to change how I feel, what does work? That's one of the, you know, one of the many reasons that set me off on the path of, you know, looking more deeply at myself. And yet we're so sold. Well, that's what we're encouraged to. It's like the dangled carrot, keep going, keep pushing, keep working, keep wanting, keep spending so that then you'll get the feeling and the feeling never comes or it never lasts or it has a high cost that kind of outweighs the benefit or yeah, it's really determining what is your why? You know, what is the why? What is your why? My why is to equip people with the tools that help me in the hopes that they will raise the bar for their own men, like mental and emotional well-being. Because I think, you know, as mums, so often our bar is so high for our parenting and then it is often so low for our mental and emotional well-being. And it's like the one needs to come down and the other needs to go up. And I just hate that through my story, that is what people can find some compassion. I think that's it. I want people to find compassion for themselves because finding it for myself is changing. I say changing because it's always going to have to be a thing because my default is not compassion. It's changed everything for me. So you kind of just want to pass it on in whatever way you can. So I think that's it. Yeah. It's beautiful. And you do it. You do it so brilliantly. I know I've told you this so many, so many times, but I think you are such a gifted communicator and I'm so grateful for you and you know what you bring to the world. No, I feel the same. I feel the same. But what would you say your why is? Oh, I think I'm still figuring that out. 
I really think I am. I think for me, you know, my journey has been one of, you know, really generational, really generational. And I think I haven't quite stepped into that place yet. I feel a lot of imposter around speaking about that. And yeah, that's what I want to step into more and more. I really, really want to help families and parents and mothers in particular with changing that cycle, breaking that cycle. How do we do that? Because I think when we become parents and mothers, all that stuff comes up to the surface. I know that to be true. But then it's like, what do we do with it? I feel like you do that so much already. So if you're wanting to step into that, you're already doing, you're stepping. Maybe you're seeing the further down the line that you'd love to, to know, see that kind of outworking. But I think the awareness that you bring is so powerful because as soon as we start realizing that there is more for us, as soon as we start wanting that and being given the tools, which you, you know, you bring us so many tools, so many tools through the words and the conversations that you facilitate, but that just disturbs that kind of like that generational rhythm. Cause we're like, well, what, maybe there is another way, maybe there is another way for me. And then how can that not change for the next generation? Cause as we change, our kids are experiencing difference. So they will go on to do different. Exactly. I think that's where my absolute passion and why is. But like you say, I'm stepping. I need to not shame myself. I can I can so think you're not confident in it, in it yet. Well, hang on, because it's an ever-evolving journey and learning, isn't it? So thank you for reminding me to recognize that. So I always ask the same question at the end, which you've answered twice before, but I know you'll give a different answer this time, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Mm, I think I want to go with one about guilt. Never let guilt go unaddressed. Never let guilt go unaddressed because guilt will shame you. It will tell you you're a failure. It will tell you that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. It will tell you you're not worthy of rest. It will tell you you're not worthy of love. It will make out that there's a wrong that you've done that you need to put right. So never let it go unaddressed. And I've got a three little tip thing that I do for this. So ACT, address what you're feeling guilty about. I'm feeling guilty because my kids have too much green time today. Okay, C, compassion. How can we pour compassion into that? Because everyone is deserving of compassion. It might be that you've got so much going on. Like that was the only opportunity for rest that you all had today. T, tweak. If guilt is there to prompt you, not shame you, what might it prompt you to do? So maybe it might be, right, you're going to put a time limit on, then you're going to go and like interact and have a cuddle and read them a story. So you're doing something off the back of it and then you've got to let it go. Because otherwise, it's just going to shame you and make you feel like a bad person. So the gift would be to never let guilt go unaddressed. Mm, So powerful. And I love that act. Oh, thank you, my lovely. It's just such a joy. I just wish you could be the guest every week. (laughs) We We could just unpack this stuff. Thank you so much, Zoe, for all the conversations you bring and for the absolute privilege of being a part of that. Oh, you're welcome. Lots of love. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 